Our scripture passage is Acts 4, 13 through 22. I've added a reading after that. I'm going to read what we see happening in Acts 4, 13 through 22. is something that Jesus said was going to happen, and he said it in Matthew 10, which I'm going to read for us after Acts 4. But Acts 4... Verse 13, hear the word of the Lord. Now, as they, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed. They began to re- recognize them as, as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do to these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. So that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you, rather than to God, you be the judge. We cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. When they had been released, they went their own, to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Um, let's go over to Matthew 10. Jesus had called men... To himself, and he called those men that he called to himself, he put them into his service as preachers. That's essentially what the apostles are. They're preachers. And then in preparation for their preaching ministry, the Lord Jesus Christ told them the kind of work and life that he had called them to as his servants. I'm going to read from verse 16 to verse 39. This is Christ to his apostles. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be even brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. It is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death, and father is child. Children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You'll be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who is endured to the end who will be saved. Whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. The disciple is not above his teacher, nor slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they've called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them. There is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ears, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not both 
two, are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered, so do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cr- up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are your children upon the earth. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for the adoption that we enjoy in Christ, the Son, our Savior. We pray that increasingly we would think and speak and feel and act like your children in such a way that brings glory and honor to you, Jesus Christ. Help us understand the life of discipleship that you've called us to. Help us understand what opposition to your gospel, Jesus, to your kingdom means. And strengthen us, Lord, to serve you in an antichrist time. We pray these things in the Redeemer's name. Amen. So Acts is Acts four is the sermon passage. Back over to the book of Acts, you see exactly what Jesus has told the men that they're going to be hauled before courts, and they'll be hauled before courts not as not as evildoers, but as Christ's preachers. Of course, they're going to be accused of being doing wrong, but they've not done wrong. So, so many things surrounding this particular. Passage. If you've been with us in the past couple of weeks, back to Acts chapter 4, the context has been the arrest and the interrogation of Christ's servants. That whole section records for us um, from Acts 1, Acts 2, the, the, the apostles of Christ are filled with the Holy Spirit. They're going out to the four corners of the earth. They're proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ, but it begins from Jerusalem onwards. And we've been told that they were arrested by the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish Supreme Court. You have the the high priests along with 70 elders. And in this case, there are other minister priests along with them. And so you have the arrest of the Apostle Peter. You have the arrest of the Apostle John by the Jewish Sanhedrin. And they've been uh, put in prison. And they're about to be interrogated. And what we we, we learn a number of lessons. If I were to look at chapter 4, chapter 4 is in part... The life of discipleship, which is why I read Matthew chapter 10, um, most of us would like life to be easier than it is. I, I certainly am one of those people. And, but the life that we have been called to by the Lord Jesus Christ is often to serve him in hard places. And so if you think, well, I, I think I would love Jesus better and more if, um, if things would just be easier, if there wouldn't be the pain, the difficulty, the opposition, the enemies, if life was just easier, I could be a better Christian. I don't think that's true, beloved. I think um, we're actually better Christians when life is harder. But I'm not arguing for a hard life. We don't have to, no one has to sign up for that. You just, um, you have to be born. But certainly being born again. And so what we're looking at here 
is the life of discipleship in the face of opposition. This is serving Jesus in hard times. And there are hard times for lots of reasons. One, just because the world is cursed. And even as human be- Christians, we live in a, just a cursed world. So it's just hard, it's hard plowing living in this world with sickness and death and suffering and all of those things. So we're called to serve Jesus and to minister the name of Jesus Christ and to live for Jesus Christ during hard times. And if you're waiting to serve him when things get easier, you might be waiting for a long time. And we're also looking at part of the discipleship of Christ's ministers. Part of serving him in hard times is serving him in the face of, of opposers, of opposition. You think, well, I'm gonna, I'll live for Jesus when everybody else that, uh, that's around me is living for Jesus. Jesus Christ oftentimes places us in a crucible and says, now I want you to live for me right now. When you're sick, when you're suffering, in the pain, in the privation, you live for me right now. When I am weak, the strength of Christ is made manifest. And then sometimes we see on the, on the, on the very heels of great victory, lots of people come to know Jesus, 3,000 come to know Jesus, 5,000 come to know Jesus, right away they get arrested. So they go, wait a minute, am I doing something wrong? I'm serving you, I'm serving you, people are receiving you, people are receiving you, and now I'm being opposed. I must be doing something wrong. No, that's not right. Oftentimes on the heel of some great spiritual success, the devil comes along with his children, angelic and human, and they oppose us. That's what we find here. And so we have the advance of King King Christ through the ministry of Christ, the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, and now Christ is calling his people, his men, the apostles, to serve him and be faithful to him in the face of enemies, in the face of opposers. And we have three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we're going to see the apostle Peter essentially is going to say to the enemies, no, no, I will not obey you, world, flesh, and the devil. I will obey my God in Christ. And that comes with a price. Jesus Christ paid the price of our salvation, but don't let anyone kid you, beloved. There's a price to discipleship to Jesus. There's a cost to pick up your cross, to deny yourself, to follow him in hard times, whether it's just physical hard times, emotional hard times, but even in the face of, 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 of enemies. And what we're going to see here along the lines of encouragement is Jesus tells the guys in advance, this is exactly what's going to happen. People are going to oppose you. Now be faithful to me. And then we see another thing which is encouraging. God provides Many times we're afraid of the hard times because we think we're going to fail. We don't think that we have the strength to live for Jesus faithfully in the face of opposition. And we think that'll be it. I'll somehow apostatize. I'll somehow defect or say something grotesque or or fail or run away. That kind of a, a thing. But God says, don't worry about what you'll say. Don't worry about your response. The spirit of my father in you will give you the words to say to your enemies. We are... we. We are not the super overcomers by our own power, but in Jesus, as we walk by faith in the Son of God, who gave himself for us, who loved us, he provides for us. He is Jehovah Jireh. So here they are on trial before the highest court of the land. They're being interrogated by men that killed Jesus, and they're able to answer boldly. This is discipleship in hard times. It's discipleship in the face of enemies, and they're victorious. Now, I would tell you what you already know there is a price sometimes to be paid for discipleship which is the ultimate price that we have to pay which is our which is our lives which i think peter certainly did 
and Paul, excuse me, John, did in another kind of way. So we have the 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 uh, the arrest, the imprisonment of the uh, of the apostles. I do want us to see something. Um, as as reformed Christians, we believe in the sovereignty of God. Our brother prayed it, sovereignty. That means the God, the Lord is is God. He's the Lord. These people are in a crucible. John and Peter are in a crucible. That's what this arrest. They're in a, this this examination before the Sanhedrin. This is an interrogation. This, they're they're not really looking for the truth. They're not cross-examining them to get it. So really, what's going on? Who is Jesus? Tell us all of. No, this is an interrogation. They want to hear what they want to hear, and they're they're tyrants. These people, and they're rulers of the church, as it were, and they're tyrannizing Christ's servants. When we are in a crucible like these men are in a crucible, it's helpful to remind ourselves of the sovereignty of God. Every when we are in hard places, guess who put us in that hard place? Our loving, our loving Heavenly Father. God, God governs everything. Sovereignty of God just doesn't extend to just, uh, just, just our election. God, is, God governs all his creatures. God governs all his actions. Everything he created, God governs through his spirit, through his word. It's, it's mysterious. Every, what is it, Jesus? The, the hairs of our head are numbered. A sparrow doesn't fall to the ground, but by the will of our heavenly father. Everything. Our entire lives are under the government of God. So when we're in a crucible of pain, privation, difficulty, now serve Jesus. God has placed us there. When we're being opposed by the enemies of Jesus Christ, God is essentially saying, now serve me. God has placed us there. Think of Job chapter 1, Job chapter 2. The devil comes before the Lord, and the Lord says to the devil, what? Have you considered my righteous servant? God starts the contest. Have you considered my righteous servant? So when we look at this opposition to Christ's faithful servants by the enemies of Jesus, our God governs this. And he governs everything for the reason he governs everything, for his glory. The opposition by the enemies of Jesus Christ to the servants of Jesus Christ, which is a frightening thing, will redound to the glory of God. God essentially says to this to the to the uh, to the Satan and to his servants, "Watch what my servants will do. Oh, your servants will curse you to your face if you threaten them with, to their to their to their death." And God says, "Go ahead. I grant you permission. Threaten them." And what does Peter say? "I will not obey you. I will obey my God. I will obey my Christ." It's helpful for us to remind ourselves in the real sovereignty of our God. If you're on a mountain, God puts you on the mountain. If you're in a valley, in a painful and a difficult time, if you're being opposed by those who hate Jesus, your Jesus Christ, our Jesus Christ, has governed that. Any sin is, belongs to other, us or other people. It's never imputed to, to the Lord. But our God governs everything. He's put them in the crucible, and guess what? He's in the crucible with them. Jesus says, I never leave you. I never forsake you. When you're on trial before the Sanhedrin, don't worry. Because I'm with you even to the end of the age. And so pain, privation, difficult circumstances, opposition, don't, we all, our flesh shrinks from it. I shrink from pain. I shrink from opposition. None of our flesh likes it. But when God in his providence brings it into our life, Remind yourself, I belong to him by covenant. He belongs to me by covenant. 
This will redound to his glory. This will work. This situation with Peter and John will work to their further conformity and usefulness to Jesus Christ. They're going to become better Christians. They're going to become more Christ-like by this. So it works to the glory of God. It works to the conformity of the servants of God and to the image of Christ. And it confounds the enemies. The, the, this is a spiritual business and warfare that we're engaged in. We think it's just you've got to wake up and you've got to go to school, you've got to go to work, you've got to do all of these. No, 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 no. Behind what we see is a massive spiritual reality of King Christ against the devil and the Christ's children against the devil's children. And, and, and this is what's going on here. There's a larger spiritual reality. Jesus Christ is confounding his enemies by governing all of these things. And I will say, even in an evangelical way, God is going to preach the gospel to the face of the enemies who want to stop the gospel. Some of them he'll damn justly. They'll, they'll hear and they'll reject. But some of them he'll save. Remember the Apostle Paul? Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 9, breathing out murderous threats. And what did God do? He converted him. So we ought not shrink back from the cost of discipleship. We ought not shrink back even from those who oppose us for Christ's sake. We shouldn't be ugly. We shouldn't be sinful. We shouldn't mimic the, the, the techniques and the life of the worldling. We should be gentle as doves, shrewd as servants, but be faithful and look to Jesus and see behind the opposition our, our God is superintending all of these things. So what these people mean for, the, for evil to hurt the apostles and servants of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ will work for good. And so if you're going through a hard time, God calls you to live faithful for him. And if you think it's going to cross you to death, it won't. It's going to conform you into the image of Jesus. If you're being opposed for, for, for presenting the truth of Christ alone, if you're being opposed, you're not doing anything wrong. You're doing everything right. And it will work to God's glory. Glory. And it will work even to your greater conformity. So that, that's really what's going on. So they've been, they've been arrested. They've been in prison. They're being interrogated. The interrogation has provided the opportunity. Again, I mentioned the sovereignty of God. If we could think of every aspect of our life as being governed by God. And think, of, think as Christians. As Christian. Christian to Christian. Think of your life. And I try to think of my life this way. Is Every place, every day, every person that's brought to me is another, is another opportunity governed by God to live out the faith that I say I have in Jesus Christ. To minister Christ either to a believer, to minister to Christ either to an unbeliever, and to live for the glory of God in every venue. High, low, sickness. Apostle Paul says, whether I live or die, I want to live for Christ. Whether I'm sick or well, live for Christ. So if, if we could look at our life through the lenses of God's sovereignty. He's governing all of this. He's bringing us... We, we think all the time, oh, I wish I could witness for Jesus. So what is my life worth? I've mentioned C.T. Studd. I think... He, I don't know whether he was expressly reformed. 1800s, guys. He said something like this. One life to live will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's this. 
So look at wherever you are as an opportunity given by God to you to live for the glory of Jesus Christ, to obey him, to be faithful to him in the face of of hardship. And now we have the platform provided by God to share the gospel and the law for that matter before the enemies of God. The Apostle Peter has been inspired by God the Holy Spirit three times to tell the Jewish Sanhedrin, which is what they're in front of the Jewish Supreme Court, three times he's said, twice in Acts 2 and once in Acts chapter 4, he says, you crucified Jesus Christ. Why would he say this to the Sadducees? Now, let me tell you who the Sadducees, the Sadducees are the priest class. The high priests come from the Sadducee party. Sadducee means righteous one. Sadak in Hebrew. And this is a transliteration. So the Sadducees are the righteous ones. Pharisees, the, 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 the counterparty, uh, they're the separate ones. So the righteous ones and then the separate ones, separate from sinners. We're not sinners, i.e. the holy ones. Here is the Apostle Peter, the Apostle John, say, you crucified Christ to people who said, we're the righteous ones. We're, we're the separate ones. We're not rabble sinners And God the Holy Spirit inspires his servant, Peter, to tell them, you're not righteous. You're not good people. You're murderers. You murdered your Messiah. Why would God the Holy Spirit inspire his servant to tell these people that thought they were righteous, that thought they were holy, you're murderers, so much so that you murdered your holy Messiah? Why would he do that? This is a Galatians chapter 3. God provides it. Remember who these guys are. All of us as Christians are servants of God. Not all of us has, have the same function. Read uh, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans chapter 12. God places us in the body of Christ where he wants us. Some people are arms, some people are legs, some people are mouths. These guys are mouths. They are, re- they are required by Jesus Christ to speak for Jesus to preach and to teach. That's their job, their whole life. They're racehorses. They're designed to run. And their run, their race, is to preach and to speak and to teach Christ and for Christ. And so God provides this platform. He compels them to tell these people who said, we are the righteous ones, to tell them you're not righteous. You're murderers. This is a a Galatians 3 principle. God the Holy Spirit oftentimes will bring us to a place, particularly preachers, particularly before people that oppose Jesus, and they oppose Jesus because they think they're righteous. And God inspires his men to say, you're not righteous. You're unrighteous. This is the use of the law in service to the gospel. The law is not the gospel. The gospel is not the law. There's a guy, he says he's reformed. It's just crazy time. He will say the law is the gospel. This is absolutely, to me, blasphemy. The law is not the gospel. The law is do this and live. The gospel is believe and live. But God uses the ministry of the law as a tutor to drive these people to Jesus. If you don't know that you have a problem, you don't see Jesus as your solution. So Jesus says you're not, God says you're not righteous. This is in order to present, what is verse 12? Look at verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, 
There's no other name under heaven which, by which has been given among men by which we, we must be saved. God has superintended all things that the Apostle Peter would have an opportunity, a platform, to tell self-righteous people, you're not holy. Our only hope of a right standing before God is to be found in the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. And so he provides that. For the remainder of our time, I want us to see that this particular setting, this interrogation of the apostles by the this Jewish Sanhedrin, it teaches us about two classes of people. It teaches us, one, about the enemies of Jesus, those who oppose him, and it teaches us also about the friends of Jesus, those who serve him, i.e., as we look at the Apostle Peter and the Apostle John. From uh, verse 13 through 24, after Peter has been busy preaching Christ uh, to them, saying Christ heals, he's alive, and Christ alone is the Savior, we have, an, we have a response by these men. I've mentioned this before. When someone faithfully proclaims the law and the gospel, but the gospel, Jesus Christ alone pays for sins. Our only hope in life and death is the precious blood of the Lord Jesus. When someone faithfully preaches that, repent, believe, and live, when someone faithfully proclaims that, it always elicits a response. Always. There is no neutrality as regards to God. There's no neutrality as regards to the gospel. There's no real or true agnosticism as regards to the preaching of the gospel. The very content of the gospel, which is propositions about Jesus, propositions about his person, propositions about his his work, that content requires a response. You can't sit on the fence. The call is repent and live, Ezekiel 18 Look to Christ and live. Believe in Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. No other name. Believe and live. There is no neutrality in that. The response will either be one of of two responses. Either, thou son of David, have mercy. I believe. Or I don't believe. Either the person believes that God is true and Christ is true, or they don't believe. It's one of two. And I know there are people who say, well, I think I can be neutral. You cannot be neutral. You cannot be neutral to the presentation of Christ in the gospel. It is impossible. For the person that says, I'm going to stay in the middle. Maybe yes, maybe no. Guess what, beloved? Maybe no is no. Maybe no is no. I'm I'm going to stay on the fence until I'm 89. And just when I give up the ghost when I don't have one scrap of of strength left, then I'll think about Jesus. Fence straddling is no. Agnosticism is no. And and what we learn here is that the gospel does elicit a response. Remember previously, 3,000 believe, 5,000 believe, and now we have unbelievers. There's always a response. Now, if someone says, well, I went to hear Reverend Hudson Frett somewhere, and I, my unbelieving friends, they thought he was great. Well, he didn't preach the gospel. I guarantee you he didn't preach the gospel. I guarantee you he didn't tell them verse 12. Guaranteed. Why? Because I can read the Bible. Guaranteed. It's either the aroma of eternal life or the stench of eternal death. And if they loved his preaching in their unbelievers, it's a bad sign. It's a bad sign. Jesus says, beware when all unbelievers speak well of you. 
What did they say about Jesus? You're Beelzebub. You're a tool of the devil. That's why we read Matthew chapter 11. And you think, well, boy, that's kind of hard things to hear. No, it's truthful things to hear. Remember who these guys are. They're servants of Jesus, but they're the heralds. You don't tell a man that's going into the military, you know what? Man, it's going to be easy squeezy. People do this with marriage. If you have a a, a son or a daughter that's getting ready to get married, don't do this because it's wrong. Oh, buttercup, it's going to be awesome. It's easy squeezy. As soon as you get married, everything's great. She thinks you walk on water and you think she walks on water. This is not true. This is why marriages last about 37 seconds. Tell them the truth. Marriage can be hard plowing because you can take two sinners and stick them in a room, even if they're safe sinners. Tell them the truth. Don't tell a minister, become a minister and everything's going to be easy squeezy. They're gone. They're gone. They're not going to, they're not going to make it. Am I right? They're not going to make it. And so God in the flesh, Jesus says to the guys, people are going to oppose you for doing right, for doing your duty. And it testifies that you're doing your duty and press on. So when the opponents of Jesus oppose you for the gospel, you should take that as an assurance of your your salvation. When the enemies of Jesus hate you, that's God, the Holy Spirit, testifying to you, you belong to God. It's not that we delight in being opposed, but we should delight in receiving the Lord's assurance. And and I will say this. If you have card-carrying, I mean card-carrying, Christ-hating, gospel-hating, Bible-hating, holiness-hating, sin-loving family and friends that you never ruffle their feathers. You are not living for Christ in front of them. You're not speaking the name of Jesus. You're not living for the glory of Jesus. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, if you are ashamed of me and you won't open your mouth for me in the face of enemies, but I'm not going to get to go to Thanksgiving. Too bad. In the face of enemies, open the, the mouth And say what? Say Jesus. Say Christ. Live for him. Be faithful. One life to live will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. These men, God has provided this opportunity. We learn that there is a response. It's yes or no. And we learn it's a good sign when Peter hears a no. He's just had 3,000 yeses. He's just had 5,000 yeses. And now he has a boatload of no's. We do not believe. He's preaching the gospel. Now, I mentioned for these men, they call this trial. They object to the preaching in the name of Jesus. They object to verse 12 that there's salvation in no other name. They object to the miracle done by the the power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. I've mentioned that they they call themselves the righteous ones. Righteous people don't like the preaching of the gospel. People that consider themselves good and holy and righteous people, they hate the true preaching of the gospel. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the what? Go ahead and finish the sentence. The sins of the world. (laughs) Jesus has not come for the righteous. He came for who? Scallywags. A bunch of scallywags. In the preaching of the gospel, you have Peter stand up and say, turn every one of you from your wicked ways. Repent of your sins. Self-righteous people do not like to hear. Are you telling me that I'm not a good person? No, you're a bad person. You're a very bad person. 
You think bad things, you have bad feelings, you say bad words, <laughs> you commit bad deeds. You're a bad person. I'm offended because I call myself the righteous one. Then you don't need Jesus. If you're good and holy and separate from sin and you're, you're righteous, go play golf. You don't need the cross. Self-righteous people. So when you think, when, when your unbelieving family and friends and you're telling them, Jesus pays for sins, believe in Jesus... And they'll say to you, you Christians think you're better than everybody. Guess what? That's, that's not true. You unbelievers think you're better than everybody. The unbeliever doesn't come to Christ because the unbeliever thinks they're righteous. They don't need saving. They need a little education. They need a little money. They need a little medicine. They certainly don't need this Savior. Self-righteous people hate pure grace. I think Arminians really are inconsistent Calvinists, but that's another story. Self-righteous people hate free grace, full grace, sovereign grace, what Peter is preaching. They want to have... I at least, I'm at least kind of good. I at least have some works. Peter comes along and says, it's only Christ. Only the name of Jesus. They're on trial for that. So we learn when the, the enemies are angry with the servants of Christ, they're angry because the servants of Christ are being faithful to Jesus, but it indicts the enemies. And another thing that will happen with the Pharisees, and this is, this is, is something that you're going to... When you faithfully preach the gospel, Pharisees, people that think they're separate from their sins by their own power, their own goodness, are going to accuse you of being a libertine. Oh, so you think you could tell a homosexual, believe in Jesus and be saved. Or you think you could tell an adulterer, believe in Jesus and all of your adultery will be washed in. You think you could just tell them that? You're, you're a libertine. That's what you are. You're against the law. You know what? You should, you should be encouraged. If you, are being encouraged. if you are being indicted by people that think they're going to heaven by their good works of being too easy on sinners, just telling them, it's Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit testifying that you're preaching the right gospel. That's Romans chapter 6, 1 through 10. Apostle Paul doesn't say this. Peter doesn't say it. Come to Jesus, and then you better hump it. You better do lots of good works. Get in the back of the bus. It's tough plowing. They come and say, Jesus saves sinners. Self-righteous people find that obnoxious. Legalists. And legalism isn't obeying the law of God. Legalism is trying to obey the law of God to merit one's salvation. All of us should labor to, um, to follow the law of God as an expression of gratitude. Self-righteous people oppose Christ. Legalists oppose Christ. Is a good sign that Peter, us as God's people, are opposed when we preach the full grace of Almighty God. Now, sometimes we think this. We believe in T, the total depravity in TULIP. Spiritual depravity, spiritual deadness. This is Ephesians 2, 1 through, 1 through 9. It doesn't, we don't mean as Reformed Christians that the unbelievers are, dead, are, are dumb as a brick. There are lots of unbelievers that are super smart. And they can get some right things. And here we have the Sanhedrin look at the Apostle Peter and the Apostle John. And they know certain things. Spiritually, they're dead in their sins and trespasses. But they're able to discern some right things. And I think for us as Christians, we should remember that. There can be some super smart unbelievers. 
And even sometimes some unbelievers can look at Christians and go, oh, they're being hypocrites there. Now, sometimes they make it up, but sometimes they get it right. And sometimes they're able to look at a believer. They, they can't ultimately understand why, but they see certain qualities that confound them. And they're right in their amazement. And that's what happens with these guys. The apostle Peter and, and, and John are on trial. They're being questioned. Peter is answering back. And the text tells us that the Sanhedrin, they're amazed. And they're, amazed, and they're unbelievers, but they're amazed at the boldness and the confidence in the, of Peter and John. They're amazed at the boldness. The, the Greek word is uh, freedom, without fear. And the freedom and the fearlessness, this is a, sometimes people, I say this all the time, I'm against hurting anyone as a Christian, unless you're a cop or you're in the military, unless you're a Romans 13, you're part of the, the, the sword, I, I, we're doves, <laughs> I, I don't hurt people, I don't want to hurt people, I tell people don't hurt people, unless you're a cop or, or, or you're in the military or someone comes into your house late at night, we, we, are, to be, we are to be gentle as doves, we're sheep. And when what we see here is a fearlessness to be a sheep doesn't mean you're a weak mamby-pamby. Here we have men that are gentle, they're meek, they're mild, but they're powerful. This, this, this fearlessness, which these guys say, look at these guys. They're not afraid of us. Why would that astound? This, this is a religious trial, an ecclesiastical trial. Why would these men be astounded that Peter and John are not afraid to answer back to them? Why would it amaze them? Think of who they are. Who's, who are these guys? They killed Christ. These are the religious leaders. These guys run the visible church. And they said concerning Jesus, let's murder Jesus. Let's murder Jesus on trumped up charges. Let's get the state to kill Jesus for us. And now we have the friends of Jesus, the servants of Jesus. And now the servants of Jesus say, you know what? You're wrong. Jesus is the Christ. You killed him, but he lives. Salvation only in him. And these guys are looking at them like, have you ever seen like a wild American, like they have like a, um, uh, like um, shows where they have like a, like a, I don't know, a cat, like fighting back against a giant dog or like a mongoose fighting back against a tiger or something. And sometimes if you go and you look at the tiger's like, what, what are you doing? You know, I could kill you with like, like a, these guys. What's the temptation? What would be the temptation that these servants of Jesus would have being interrogated by these guys that just killed Christ? We're going to kill you? People that kill other people are not afraid to kill other people. You're in front of a pack of murderers. These guys murdered Christ. The one that you say is the Christ. The one that you love. And you're his servants. And the obvious threat is running throughout the passage you better be quiet about Jesus or we're going to kill you and the guys do what they keep preaching now you would think well that's because the apostle Peter is like Sergeant York he has like the constitution of Rocky Marciano no 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 he doesn't what did Peter do when he was questioned by a servant girl I don't know I don't know him I don't know what you're talking about why was he afraid because he was getting he's going to get killed the fear of death is real. The fear is, of man is real. 
But you know what else is real? The power of the risen Christ. We live, I live, so far below our calling. Most of us walk by, by sight and not by faith. We live by faith like this much during the day. We live so far below our calling. The Bible says in, in Timothy, in the epistle of Timothy, God has given us dunamis, not fear, not tremulousness, not, not weakness, but, but power. What is on display is God the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the living Jesus Christ, will empower us spiritually when it comes to this kind of a time, when we're required to live by faith and not by sight. So, much, so many of us live so far below the privileges and the power that belongs to us in Jesus. This is not natural constitution. Natural constitution, when you stand before someone and, and naturally, and the person says, I have the power to kill you. You still want to talk about Jesus? What will you say? No, no, I don't think I will. When they're being filled with the power of God, governed by the Holy Spirit, what do they say? We're not stopping. But I'm going to kill you. That's okay. You killed my Christ. He lives. You're going to kill me. I will live. This, this, is, this is radical. This is, ra- this, is, this is discipleship. This, this, this is not being a man-fearer and being a God-fearer, being a Christ-fearer. Serving Jesus is not for the faint-hearted. We're not serving Jesus in a Jesus-friendly world. We're not serving Christ in a Christ-friendly world. We serve Christ in an anti-Christ world. Can we overcome? Yes. Yes. It says in verse 14, and these men were with Jesus. That's how they have this power. Being with Jesus is where we get our holiness. Being with Jesus is where we get our power. And so it happens. And so these men are fearless. Beloved, I need this. Do you not need this? Do you not need a fearlessness? Who's not afraid of the world, the flesh, and the devil? Who's not afraid? We all are. The flesh, the flesh trembles. We need a fearlessness confidence which only comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. And the other thing that these guys are amazed at, and I don't want to go too long, these guys, the Sadducees, the, the Sanhedrin, they're the Bible teachers for the church. The, I'm using the word church for the household of faith. They're amazed. They say these guys are unlearned, unlearned and unlettered. And what are they amazed at? Not only at the boldness, the bold, bold, boldness of, of the apostles, the scripturalness. They are amazed that a couple of fishermen are preaching and teaching Christ from the Bible. It's Bible, 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 Bible. Y'all are just a couple of fishermen. And, and remember what we've looked at. And they're amazed at this. The, remember we said unbelievers sometimes get things right. When they say they're unlearned and unlettered, they're right. These are the seminary professors. These are the preachers with the degrees. These are the office bearers. These are the ministers, the reverends. They went to seminary. And they say, none of these guys went to seminary. None of these guys are ministers. They're not elders. And look at them. And they're amazed at what? The apostle Peter stands up and says, Jesus is the fulfillment of Joel 2. And he quotes Joel 2. Then he stands up and says, Jesus is the fulfillment of of, of Psalm 16. And he quotes Psalm 16. He's a fisherman. Oh, beloved. Oh, beloved. And then he goes on to say, in Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 110. 
And Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 118. He's doing Bible after Bible after Bible to supposed Bible teachers. And these guys are amazed. And you know what they can't, what they're unable to do? They can't respond back. There is power in the name of Christ. There is power in the word of God. I need to believe it more. Preachers need to believe it more. But we all need to believe it more. There is power. The Bible says in the book of Jeremiah, what was Jeremiah? What was he called? A weeping what? Prophet. Weak as a lamb. But but God says, "Is, is my word not like fire? Is my word not like a hammer? You know what stops the enemies of Christ? Stops them in their tracks. The word of God. The word of God proclaiming the Christ of God. And they can't answer back. You see how these teachers of religion, they're not, they're not saying to, the, to, to Peter and John, they're not responding saying, well, you know what, you got, you got Joel too wrong. Did you ever look at first hesitations over here? You're wrong here. This is, they're not answering back with a biblical argument. You know why? They don't have one. They're leaders in the church and they don't know the Bible. It's not the office that makes anything. Does this person know God in Christ? Do they preach God in Christ? Do they know the word? If they don't know the word, sit down. It's the word. And the, and the guys are amazed. And they, they can't answer back. And they take a quick counsel. They put the guys aside. They know they've been stumped. They take a quick counsel. And this is why we read Psalm 2. And they, they take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. They're having a quick... These are, the, these are the ministers, the church leaders. They call an ecclesiastical synod a real quick one and say, look it, we can't answer back to these guys. What should we do? Sometimes we think, well, as, belie- as believers, we are absorbed with the Bible, we're absorbed with truth, we go out and share the truth of God in Christ to our unbelievers, uh, family and friends, and they, they answer back or they refute us. And we think like this, well, they're, they're concerned with truth like me. They, they, they want to know the truth. Oh, no, they don't. No, they don't. They're not about the truth. Our unbelieving family and friends, the enemies of God and Christ, are not about the truth. These unconverted church ministers are not about the truth. What are they about? They know the truth. They know they've not done anything wrong. They know they're preaching faithfully to Jesus. They know what they've said is true. What do they have to do? What do they really want? They want to keep self-autonomy. They want to keep service to sin. This is, this is part of the spiritual war. We think, oh, we're going we're gonna to do this, we're going to do that. The unbeliever doesn't care about truth. They're going to tell you they do care about truth. They're going to twist and turn everything. They want to keep autonomy. They want to serve self, worship self. King Christ comes along and says, serve and worship me. And so they take this quick counsel and they say, the text says, they've done nothing wrong to get punished. But here's what unbelievers do when they're stumped and they can't respond back. Enemies of Christ. What do they do? Verse 17 and following. They warn them. The word is a compound word in Greek. Verse 17 clearly. They threaten them. What does that mean? We're going to beat you. These are the leaders of religion. Sometimes we, we think we're told this. We are enlightened. 
I, I feel this when I go back to New England, the enlightened New England. Go talk to an unbeliever, anti-Christ, anti-Bible, no holiness, pro-sin, unbeliever. Make them, I don't know, have 12 degrees. They're enlightened. Make them in New England because they have an extra little enlightenment in New England. And then you keep pressing the claims of Jesus. Go ahead. You know what you're going to hear? You know what you're going to see from a really enlightened, super moral, religious, highbrow person? You know what you're going to hear? A very bad word. You're fixing to hear a very bad word. And then the gloves are coming off. And then you're going to get threatened with what? And I will hurt you. Wow. I thought you were genteel. I thought you were enlightened. Oh, no. No. The claims of Christ pressed even to these religious leaders. They don't care about justice. They don't care about truth. All they care about is self or sin. They resort to... This is man. Unconverted man always will resort to what unconverted man is. Half a beast and half a devil. If you keep preaching the name of Jesus, we are going to hurt you. Now, the Apostle Peter and the Apostle John have one or two. God is testing their faith. And I'm going to say this, beloved. If God has you in a hard place right now this morning as a Christian, or God has you in a place where you're being opposed for Christ's sake, God is testing you. He's testing your faith. Will you stand for me? Or will you not? I know there are gray things in in life. Hard things to figure out. But I'm going to say what I believe. Mostly our path of duty is brutally clear to Christ. Mostly. They say to these ministers... Don't preach Christ. Don't even say the name Jesus. This isn't pay your taxes. I know there's always some goofball in the Christian church that has a goofball YouTube channel that says, this is why you don't need to pay your taxes. Acts 4, Acts 5. I have two words for you. Al Capone. That's how they got Al Capone when he didn't pay for his taxes. This is not that. This is don't preach Jesus. Don't say Jesus. This is a test. Will you fear man or will you fear Christ? Will you try to preserve your life or will you not count even your own life to serve Jesus? Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.